And thank you all so much for joining us for our service online today. Really, really glad to have you with us. I want to say a special welcome uh, to the children who are watching uh, with your families at home. It is so great to have you part of our service. I know you miss being in your Noah's Ark classes and Kids Rock with Miss Marie, but uh, we're so glad that you're joining us now online. I want to mention that this morning we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. So if you've got a piece of bread or some juice handy, you might want to get those together in the next 20, 25 minutes. Or if you got one of these uh, prepackaged uh, communion cups from our church, uh, we will partake of the Lord's Supper at the uh, end of the message this morning. As Brian mentioned at the very beginning, if you joined us right at the start, next Sunday is a really special day for us. It's our annual Youth Sunday when our youth lead the service, the worship. We get to hear from some of their experiences over the summer in their uh, various missions events. It's a great, great time, and I hope you'll be sure to uh, join us for that. And then two weeks from today, on August the 16th, we will, of course, be continuing our live stream service at this time, and we'll be continuing that on into the future as we enter the fall. But that's the day we'll invite those who'd like to come worship with us in person here to our sanctuary. And uh, it would be a help to us if you would go to our website and look on the, the letter on the opening page and at least let us know if you plan to come that day. We just want to be prepared for the number who will come to ensure we can provide uh, the proper spacing for you in our worship area. We also ask that you wear a faith, face mask that day. Now, I know that nobody really enjoys wearing a face mask. I don't. But at least, at least the masks today are not nearly as bad as they were in the past. Yes, what you see is a replica of an actual face mask worn by so-called plague doctors in around the 1700s. This is a replica. You'll see a, a real one that's in a museum. In the 17th century, a Frenchman named Charles de la Orme invented a plague mask with a beak. It was often worn by plague doctors, and his invention was in keeping with the odor-based disease theory. That is the, the disease, the plague was transmitted by the odor. And so the beak of this mask was stuffed with sweet-smelling flowers and perfume because these scents were thought to banish the spread of the disease, the potential of the spread of the disease. How would you like to have had to wear one of those? Glad they're not in use today. Well, we're continuing today with our series that we're calling One Story. We're looking at the unity of the Bible, Old and New Testament, how all 66 books fit together to provide a unified whole revealing God's great plan for his people. Last week, we made the move from the Old Testament to the first New Testament book, the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we come to the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It is action-packed. It is fast-moving throughout its uh, 16 chapters. We read these words at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, short, simple statement, but packed with theological truth and richness. Mark begins with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. 
The word gospel means good news, good message. The beginning of the good news, he's telling us, of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus is significant. He was given the name before his birth because the angel said he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus has to do with his saving work. The name Christ is equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah because Jesus would come as Savior as the Messiah, but also the Son of God, which speaks to his deity. All these things are packed into the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark. Now, from here, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll see it moves very, very quickly. Just in chapter 1, we see Jesus going about healing people, casting out demons. We see his baptism in chapter 1. And then as we move through this short gospel, we see he sends out his disciples to do ministry. He walks on the water. He feeds the multitudes, thousands of people, multiplying food to feed them. And then we get to Mark chapter 8. And that's where I'd like to focus today on the passage that Susan read for us just a moment ago. Because the short passage that Susan just read contains three of the very most important teachings in all the Gospels, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one short passage lets us in on who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how to follow him. This one section, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how to follow him. Let's look first at who Jesus is. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, at this point, Jesus had been doing lots of miracles. He'd been healing people. He'd been casting out demons. There was a buzz about him. There was a lot of talk about it. And if we go back to Mark chapter 6, we read that people were talking about them. And one of those people was Herod himself, King Herod, who had had John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod said, this is John whom I beheaded. He's come back to life. He's been raised from the dead. So people were saying John the Baptist, others were saying Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, others, one of the other prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. There's a fuller account of this conversation between Jesus and Peter's uh, calling him the Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. There it's recorded that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Now, why was Jesus so thrilled with Peter's acknowledgement that he was the Messiah? I mean, shouldn't they all have already known this? The fact is, Jesus' own disciples were slow to grasp who he really was. Even his own followers, even after his crucifixion and after his resurrection from the dead, when Jesus appeared to his own disciples, we read in the scripture that they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some of his own disciples doubted, even after they saw him raised from the dead. I love the fact that the Bible is so remarkably truthful in what it presents to us. It does not hide 
the failures and the flaws and the weaknesses of the people who, who really are the leaders of the Christian faith. It's true in the Old Testament too. The flaws of Moses, Abraham, and David are not hidden from us. Likewise, in the New Testament with people like Peter, we see that they were imperfect. To me, this is just one of the marks of the truthfulness of the Bible. The disciples were, were slow to grasp who he was, and they were particularly slow to grasp what he came to do. And Mark now, in this short passage, moves from who Jesus is to what he came to do. And Jesus tells them clearly what the central focus of his mission on earth was to be. We read these words, 31 to 33 of Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, there was no mistake about it. Jesus made it very clear. He said it with confidence and boldness so there'd be no mistake. How did they respond? And Peter, the Peter who just recognized his Messiahship and called him the Christ, Peter took him aside, can you imagine this, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is saying that Peter... Satan is working behind the scenes to try to deter me from my mission. The disciples were not expecting a suffering servant Messiah. This is why Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Lord, this will never happen to you. You're not going to suffer, be rejected, be nailed to a cross. Many people in Jesus' day among the Jews, and apparently including his own disciples, were expecting the Messiah to be a powerful, earthly, military leader who would come and set up his kingdom on earth and overthrow the Roman rule, not one who must suffer many things. Had they known the teaching of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, they would have known that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Isaiah chapters 52, 53, that part of the book of Isaiah is filled with teaching about the reason for the Messiah's suffering to bear our iniquities. But they were slow to believe it. Jesus wanted this to be so crystal clear in their minds that he not only told them this in Mark chapter 8, he told them this again in Mark chapter 9, as you see in the following verses. In Mark 9.31, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I guess they were afraid to ask him because he had just rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Mark chapter 10. Again, we read, Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him 
and after three days he will rise. Jesus wanted this to be crystal clear in the minds of his disciples, and he wants it to be crystal clear in our minds. Friends, it is critical to understand that the crucifixion and the resurrection that followed it are central to Jesus' coming. They are the central focus of his mission. In his own words, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did many wonderful things on earth. He healed many people. He fed many hungry people. He taught many people. But the focus of his mission was his crucifixion because it was there that the sinless Son of God would bear the judgment for our sins so that through our faith in him, we might be forgiven and considered righteous and adopted by our heavenly Father and granted eternal life with him forever. This was the central focus of his mission. Critically important to understand this. As one Bible commentator writes, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. A wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Now Jesus is going to move now in his teaching from what he came to do to how we're supposed to follow him. Mark is revealing who Jesus is, what he came to do, and thirdly, how to follow him. And this is why I say it's important to understand his Messiahship because discipleship follows his pattern. How to follow him, first of all, by self-denial. Notice what Jesus says in the very next verses of Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him, and now Jesus is speaking not just to his disciples. This should be clear to us. This is for everybody, the larger crowd. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone, and this is going to pertain not just to those first disciples, but any follower of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see what Jesus is saying? I'm not only your Savior, but my life is your pattern. This is not saying that we will be crucified to atone for sins. We can't do that. Jesus did that once and for all. He's the Son of God. Only He could atone for sin. But we are to follow His self-denying, humble servanthood. He's our pattern. If anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A Christian life is one of self-denying, humble servanthood. This time we're in, I know, is... It's an unusual time, and for many of you, I know it's an extremely stressful time. Uh, I think that's particularly the case for those of you who find yourselves now working at home and have young children that you're trying to manage. Some of you even trying to manage their schooling at the same time. I don't know how you do that, uh, and I know it's stressful. 
But um, I've been hearing, we in the church have been hearing that um, marriages are particularly struggling. I think marriage is always challenging for everybody. Some people say it's not, but I don't believe them. I think marriage is at some point challenging for everyone. And that's why we have to view our marriage as a covenant made before God if we're Christians and look to him for the sustaining grace to carry us through. But I think the model of Jesus, self-denying, humble servanthood, is particularly important in a Christian marriage. Many people struggle in marriage because their focus is largely upon their own happiness, their self-fulfillment. And while many things about marriage do bring us fulfillment and joy, our focus must not lie upon our own happiness and self-fulfillment. The Apostle Paul picks up the same idea that Jesus presents to his disciples about the need for self-denial in following the pattern of Jesus. He picks it up in his letter to the Philippian church, and I think his words are particularly important for those of you, uh, those of us who are married. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, notice how the Apostle Paul instructs us and then how he links it to Jesus' self-denying, humble servanthood and taking his own cross. He writes in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from rivalry or, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count your spouse more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not your own happiness only, but the happiness of others. Have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of the serpent, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Self-denying, humble servanthood. Paul says that's our model. But Jesus said it first. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A right view of Messiahship leads to a right view of discipleship. I want to stop right now. Pray for those of you who um, are married. And uh, particularly those who may be struggling in your marriages. So would you join me as we just take a moment right now to pray. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for each person watching this service or listening to the podcast. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do the needed work in each one of us to increase our devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ and our commitment to following your example of self-denying servanthood, that we would indeed put the interest of others above ourselves, that we would in humility count others more significant than ourselves, and particularly I pray we'd be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to do this in our marriages. Would you enable this to be, Father, for your own glory? Pour healing grace on those marriages 
that are in particular difficulty now. Bring healing, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So Jesus, Marcus told us, is the Messiah, the Christ. He's told us what he came to do, and now he's telling us how to follow him. Jesus begins by telling us that if anyone would follow him, we have to deny ourselves. Then he moves to the importance for one of his followers of prioritizing the well-being of the soul, the eternal well-being of the soul. And he says something most interesting after he talks about the need for self-denial in verse 36. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Notice something here. Jesus is contrasting the value of a human soul with the gain or the wealth of the entire world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, all the wealth of this world, and it costs him his soul? Do you see the incredible importance, the eternal value of the human soul? It's calling us as we consider being his followers, as we consider what discipleship is all about and the call to self-denial and losing our lives for his sake. He's calling us to recognize the great value of prioritizing spiritual life in him, prioritizing the value of the soul. I think some of us can live our lives so focused on our wealth and our pleasure and our comfort and our security that we give very little regard to the health of our souls. The soul is priceless in the sight of God. Friends, we, we must guard our souls in this life. We must guard our souls from love of money, covetousness, greed, with being consumed with our own pleasure or, or comfort never willing to deny ourselves anything. We have to guard our souls from unforgiveness, bitterness, the type of resentment can, that can just uh, really harm the human soul. Jesus is calling us to live with an eternal perspective about the great value of the soul. So he's teaching us that if we're to follow him, it's going to involve self-denial, prioritizing the well-being of the soul, and one more thing, courageously acknowledging him and his words. That is not being ashamed of it. He says in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, you got to be willing to suffer rejection from me in this self-denying life as a Christ follower. you got to be willing to be mocked, if need be, for faithfully acknowledging me and holding fast to my name and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation in which we live. Notice that Jesus also reminds us in this same thought that he's going to return. Those who are ashamed of him, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, for you who would follow me, you want to be a Christ follower, remember that day is going to come. I'm going to come back. 
I'm going to return. I'm going to come in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. So don't be ashamed of me. Profess me. Acknowledge me. Live boldly for me. That day will come, friends. That day will come. Now, as we wrap this up and move to our celebration of the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on this one passage where Jesus teaches us who He is, what He came to do, the central focus of His mission, and then thirdly, how to follow Him. May we be people who really know and understand who He is, that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. May we be people who know why He came, the central focus of His mission, to give His life on the cross, to atone for our sin, that He would be raised from death, His central mission. Because understanding His central mission informs our own followership of Him. May we know who He is, why He came, and then thirdly, how to follow Him by following His pattern. That includes self-denial, prioritizing the soul, boldly acknowledging Him as we anticipate his certain return. One of the ways we anticipate the return of Jesus is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper or communion, the Apostle uh, Paul tells us uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is one of the ways that we proclaim his death on the cross, his central mission, until he comes. And so I'd like to read these words by the Apostle Paul, as you will see them on the screen, and then take a moment to uh, pray and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And again, if you have handy some bread or juice, or you've got one of these little uh, prepackaged cups from our church, you might want to grab that. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant <coughs> excuse me, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think it's important to understand that this isn't a mere ritual that we take in the church. This is an expression of your personal faith, your personal uh, reception of Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You're having received the benefits of His death on the cross for you, the giving of His body, the shedding of His blood. By taking communion, you're saying, by faith I receive this and I proclaim that I'm his follower. And then the Apostle Paul encourages some self-examination when we take communion. For he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think that means we examine the genuineness of our own faith of our own commitment as followers of Jesus Christ. 
But I think it's also a time for a, a, a more broad heart examination that we ask the Lord to show us as we prepare to take communion, whether there's somebody we need to forgive, um, a, a sin we need to confess to Him, something we may need to uh, acknowledge before Him and receive His forgiveness. So I'd like to do that now. I'd like to take just um, uh, a minute or two um, to pray and then give a, a moment of silence for each of us to examine our own hearts. So would you join me? Father, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit who guides us. Prepare us to take communion, to take it in the right way in your eyes. Lord, I pray first for anyone who's watching our service who may have never truly given his or her life fully to you, embracing by faith your saving work. Would you bring that one to yourself today? Speak to us now, Lord. Amen. Oh,